We are starting a new series of messages off the book of Exodus. I'm actually quite excited about this. My favorite book in the Bible was whichever one I happen to be reading at the moment generally, but like Genesis and Exodus, like the first five books of the scriptures, I don't know if you've read them lately. They're absolutely amazing. There are so many cool things that God teaches us about himself and about who we are through these early books. In these first stories, even in Exodus, we see Moses, we see the plagues, we see this battle against Pharaoh, we see the Passover. They're pretty famous stories, but they're not famous just because of the movies. They're famous because these are the stories that actually define the people of God. These are the stories where God shows us his name. We were singing the song Yahweh. That comes out of Exodus. These are the stories where God like stakes his reputation on his people and says, here's who I am and here's what I'm about. God reveals his name. He reveals his character. He reveals what he wants his reputation to be. He reveals himself to Moses. He reveals himself in this showdown with Pharaoh. He liberates people so that they would come to know the name of Yahweh, so that everyone would know his character. In fact, when you read through, as, as we're going to, as you go through Exodus, you're gonna find out the whole reason he's doing this. It's this theme that comes up over and over again is so that everyone will know who I am. Like that's why he's doing it. That's what's going on here in these stories. And so God reveals himself to his people. I think it's really important for us today as a church to study this book together for a few different reasons. Number one, as I've watched the followers of Jesus over the past couple years, like sometimes in person, oftentimes in the news, on social media, if I could be really honest, I'm really disappointed in us over the past couple years. It often feels like maybe we've lost touch with who God is and with what he's actually really doing in the world today. And so one of the things I love about studying Exodus is God reveals himself. This is who I am. This is what it looks like to live like the people of God. And this is what it looks like to live like the people of God in a culture that doesn't understand you whatsoever. He's showing them how to live as people who not just bear his image, everyone that's created is created in the image of God, but how to bear his name, how to carry forth his reputation and the things that he mostly cares about. He's showing them what it means to worship the one true God and how to live in the world as the people of God. And honestly, I feel like we need to learn again who is God and what's his reputation and what does it mean to live today as the people of God who bear the name of God in our world? Are crosses just things that we wear? Or are we a people who follow the way of the cross? Are crosses just things that we put on the stage? Or are we a people that follow the way of the cross? Because that's what we're invited into. That's what we're invited into. We need to learn who God has revealed himself to be apart from culture. Because here's, here's, here's like a reality. It doesn't matter whether you lean more uh, politically towards the right or to the left. Both of those uh, paths miss the mark of living according to the cross. Living according to who God's revealed himself to be. 
And so we want to do that. All these questions are asked, all these questions are answered as we look at the narrative of God and Israel's story. I love this quote uh, from uh, Dr. Carmen Imes. It says, it reads this way, uh, there's a quest for identity and need to find ourselves, find out who we are, what we're supposed to do with our lives. I love the way she says it's all at Mount Sinai. It's all at the book of Exodus. So today, what I want to do is tackle the first chapter. But before we tackle the first chapter, I want to show you a little video, a couple minute video uh, by some of our friends over at the Bible Project. And so, do we have this video working? Let's start that over with the sound of the video. It doesn't come with music, it actually comes with sound. Hey, some cool people that know how to push the buttons are jumping up there right quick. Let's pause the video. There we go. Try it one more time. Thank you. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually, Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here, Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. Okay, that's a little bit of an overview from the Bible Project of what we're going to be looking at. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to their resources, but they are spectacular. Uh, I especially love their podcast. It goes into way more depth that we can go through on the weekends. And then they have a new series of classes coming out that are actually really wonderful. So if you're looking for help in understanding, like, what is the Bible actually talking about? How is the Bible one story that actually points us to Jesus? 
Check them out, bibleproject.com. So today, for a few of the points of that story, let's make some application to our lives today. Let's read. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up? Exodus chapter 1, second book of the Bible. It's not hard to find. Uh, there's a lot of them right there in the rack of the chair in front of you. You can turn to it on your device. You want to be like Moses, open up your tablet. I've been waiting for a while. There you go. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it starts out like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, uh, Ishkar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, number 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. You know, it's, it's fascinating. This Hebrew book literally begins with the word and. It literally begins in Hebrew with the word and, like, and these are the names. That's where it starts. I don't know if you're a writer or if you've read many books. There's not too many books that just begin with the word and. Like, what's the writer communicating to us by beginning like a whole new book? That's a strange way to do it. The writer is purposefully joining Exodus to Genesis. Everything that came before is a part of this story. Uh, ancient Hebrew literature, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are actually known as meditational literature. It's meant to be read over and over again. It's meant for us to notice repeating themes and patterns and all sorts of different things that actually started in the first couple chapters and continue all the way through. It's written in a way that's not just narrating the story, but it's showing us and teaching us who God is. Who is this God that created everything and continues to intervene in human history? And if you haven't read these books for a while, I would recommend this autumn that you join me and start reading through Genesis and Exodus again. Just start right at the very beginning and read through them. Take time to jot down some of like the repeating patterns, some of the things that we're going to highlight as we go through this on the weekend. Right? We're going to highlight a bunch of these things as we talk about it. So right at the very beginning, first part of the story, beginning with the Hebrew word and, we're meant to reflect on how Exodus is a continuation of the past. It's part of a much larger story. However the people of Israel might view their present circumstance, this author is reminding them that the full story is like way bigger than where they are in life right now. It stretches back to their ancient ancestors. It stretches all the way back to the very beginning when God created you see, it's, it's only actually seeing our situation from the bigger, let's call it divine point of view, that we can actually hope to gain an understanding of what's going on in our lives. It's this divine point of view that transcends thousands of years and comes to our life today. And one of the things that we discover right away is that we're actually never alone. The people of God are never alone. God's actively intervening in life. God's with his people like he has been in the past. He will be with his people into the future much longer than you and I can possibly imagine. No matter how alone you might feel at any present time, the people of God are never alone. God sees, he knows, and names his people, he is with them no matter what. 
it's interesting because in, in our day, presently, there, there's actually a couple endemics that are going on, not just COVID, but one of the things that we've noticed for the past decade that's been growing and growing and growing in our culture is endemic loneliness, that we do feel alone. That most people that you talk to, whether they're part of a family or not, feel alone. Part of it's the, maybe the transactional nature of our lives. Maybe it's our, our compulsive attachment to things. Maybe it's the ubiquitous screens that we have around us all day long, every day. Whatever the thing happens to be, it's like we often feel alone. In fact, I was reading a, a, a recent study that showed most people reach kind of the height of their personal relationship interactions by the time they get to be 25. Anybody in here 25? It's like, you, you've reached the height. You'll probably never have more relationships than you do at 25, according to the experts. And that from that point on, then they tend to dwindle because we invest less time in them, possibly because we get hurt. Ever been hurt in a relationship? And then we tend to set up barriers, we tend to set up walls, we tend to not let people very close. And as we're keeping the hurt away, we're also keeping the community and the love that we could feel away. The barrier works both ways, right? There's endemic loneliness. We're created for connection to God and to one another. This personal community is vital for our health. God made us to need it. That's why one of the reasons that we gather in person as a church is one of the reasons that we, and I totally understand that for some people gathering online is their only option. It's one of the reasons that we have small groups in our community is because we actually need relationship. And I understand we have to rearrange our lives to go be a part of a small group. Sometimes it's easier to stay home at night. Sometimes it's easier to not clean up the house and invite people over. Sometimes it's easier to not get up early in the morning for an early morning small group. But God's created us for connection with him and with one another. And God himself is always present. That's like what the Holy Spirit is. I love Gordon Fee's old book. It's called God's Experienced Presence. What Fee is talking about in this huge mammoth book is he's talking about how every time that the Holy Spirit is brought up in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God. The Holy Spirit is God's way of being present with you. He's as close as you just turning your head towards him or turning your heart towards him. Like he's that close. And, and, and I wonder for us, how often do we maybe just dive into the feeling of being alone or maybe a, a, a quick, uh, uh, just a quick look at the screen rather than actually turning to God to meet us in that moment? How often do we turn towards a, a, a habit or a way of doing something that kind of relieves that sense of loneliness for a split second rather than pressing into that and turning to God. Here's the deal. One of the first things that we see in the book of Exodus, God hasn't left his people. And everything that he's been doing with them throughout Genesis is still going on. I want each of us to be able to experience the tangible presence of God in our lives. Like that's my hope, that's my desire. That's why I do what I do. 
I want you to experience God's tangible presence in your life. When we pray, come Holy Spirit, that's one of the things that we're praying. Lord, would you allow us to experience your tangible presence in our lives? And I'm only going to touch really briefly on this today, but it's, it's, it's kind of uh, ironic that uh, the writer mentions that the family of Abraham, the family the, uh, of Jacob, with all the descendants coming to Egypt to 70 people. Is that a number that you've ever heard in the scriptures before? It's meant to take you all the way back to Genesis. God creating the world in how many days? Seven days. He created the cosmos in six, and then on the seventh day, he stopped and he settled into his creation to rest and rule with his human partners in a day, Genesis chapter two, that has no end. That rest is what we long for, and when you see that number come up over and over again, in fact, you're gonna see it like, I don't know, a hundred times. Maybe it's more like 700 times in Exodus. You're gonna see it come up an awful lot. Every time you see it, God's going back to Genesis chapter one and two and the way that he works and the rest that he wants to bring. The seventh day rest is what we long for and what God promises to recreate and we are never alone with him in that. Exodus chapter one. Let's look at verse six. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So all the descendants of Jacob, they've moved to Egypt because of this regional famine. That whole first generation has died, and they are multiplying like rabbits. The language of multiplication and fruitfulness is meant to remind us again of where we've heard that before. It was God's very first blessing to human beings, Genesis chapter one. He said, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. The descendants of Jacob are experiencing the blessing that God's given at the very beginning of creation. In fact, it's the blessing that God gave to the descendants of Noah as well, Genesis chapter nine. God blessed Noah and his sons saying, be fruitful and increase in number. They're receiving the blessing of God the blessing that was forfeited by Adam and Eve when they brought a curse on the land. And so God singled out this family and he passed this blessing on to them. Here's another point just to highlight. The God of creation is a God who keeps his promises. He consistently keeps his promises. He never fails to keep his promise. He does what he said he would do. And a big part of that was to bless Abraham and his descendants, not just to be fruitful and multiply for themselves, but so that they would be a blessing to the whole entire world. Here's here's where we read about it, Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The story of Exodus is the story of how God is continuing to do that, to bless all the earth through the family of Abram. Remember, though, that in order for them to get there, there was a ton of hardship. Joseph got to Egypt, not because he went on a little family camping trip, 
It's because his brothers betrayed him and they sold him into slavery. And it was the way that God used to provide for Jacob and his family through the famine. In fact, it's the way that God used to bless all of Egypt through that famine, through Joseph's leadership. All of Egypt was provided for during that famine. And then there's a little word in verse seven that stands out. In English, it reads that they increased in number, but the Hebrew word means that they became mighty strong, they became powerful in number. They were overwhelming, they were swarming Egypt. And that gets us to verse eight. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. If war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So we have this new king, this new pharaoh, who could care less really about where this immigrant population had come from, about the history of how all of Egypt had been blessed and provided for because of their presence. And the writer is highlighting how this new king is actually meant to remind us of someone else by the language being used here. The king is saying, we should deal shrewdly with them, craftily with them. We should deal wisely with them. Is there anybody else in scripture that you may have read about that was considered really shrewd like that? Genesis chapter three. We're dialing back up the serpent, the snake, who was more crafty, more shrewd, wiser, is another way to say that, than all the other creatures. Genesis chapter three, this new king is thinking, we don't want a situation where these guys fight against us or decide to leave us. We love what they bring to our economy, but we're really afraid of how strong they're becoming. What's interesting about Pharaoh is this totally opposite of what God promised Abram. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. The Pharaoh is like, how do I keep all the blessing to myself and to my people? How do I make it really all about me and what I'm doing? The people of God are meant to be a blessing, not just accumulate blessing. We are a people shaped by God's blessing, our trust in him. We're a a, a people shaped by trust even when it's difficult to trust. That key thought, we're blessed to be a blessing, is a key key thing for the people of God. Here's another really key application point for us. Can we trust that God's given us enough even when it doesn't feel like enough? or even when we're being asked to share it with some other people. The opposite of that is the shrewdness of the serpent. The shrewdness where we put ourselves in place of God and we think about how we might harness this for ourselves. We step out from under God's abundance and generosity and provision. Let me me keep going. Chapter uh, one, verse 11. So here's what they do. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And then they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. These are like cities where they're just gonna store all their extra. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. 
Whether or not they were enslaved before this, we don't know. But now, out of fear, the Egyptians intensified the slavery of Israel. And what they were working to accomplish with their slave labor was entire cities built for storage. Entire cities built for storage of more. That brought to mind the reporter, whether the story is true or not, who once asked uh, John Rockefeller, the richest man in the world at the time, how much is enough? Do you remember the answer that came from that? Just a little bit more. It makes me think of us. How much is enough for us? You know, often when we're, we're coming to God, we're saying, God, I need this in my life. Can you do this thing in my life? I hear those words echoed again. How, how much is enough, Michael? How much is enough, Vineyard Church? How much do you really need? I wonder how much, how often our answer is, you know, just a little bit more. What's behind that? Well, one of the things that's behind that is a lack of trust that God will provide what I need when I need it. And one of the things I've noticed in my own life with him, my own walk with him, is he lets me get right up to the edge before he meets me right there so that my trust in him deepens. Yes, he's Yahweh. Yes, he can do absolutely anything. And what he's often inviting me to do is this trusting, dependent relationship on him. Well, the more Egypt oppresses Israel, the more they flourish. The more we fear somebody making our lives difficult, maybe the more flourishing is actually right there. This one long story as you go through this of Egypt trying to harness God's blessing for their own personal advantage. The way that you approach God is not trying to harness him for what you want. It's in worship. The way you approach, we approach other people is not trying to get them to give us what we want for as little as possible. It's compassion. And those really are the pillars of our community following Jesus. And so Pharaoh tries three things. The first thing, he tries enslavement, and it's not working. In fact, it's accomplishing the absolute opposite. Again, we're not sure if they were slaves before this point in the story, but his mistreatment of the people of God leads to even more flourishing. So then there's a second attempt. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sapphira and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby as a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? I love the midwives' response. They answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Like we just get there and it's already done. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. I love these two Hebrew midwives. Their names actually mean beautiful and sparkle. And, and, and they're meant to remind us of Eve, except they don't listen to the snake. They don't listen to Pharaoh. They listen to God. 
They're like a redeemed Eve. And when asked what's going on, they deceive the deceiver, which is a theme that came all the way through Genesis over and over and over again. I love the way they do that. And so the second attempt's not working. In fact, it's accomplishing the opposite. It's bringing about the very thing Egypt fears. The second attempt, let's just kill them off as we milk them for all the labor they're worth. And so the third attempt becomes even more sick. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, everyone. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live, verse 22. As we know from the story and all the movies, this also doesn't work. In fact, Pharaoh is going to end up raising the very one who comes through the Nile River who's going to set Egypt free. Here's the deal. No matter what your circumstances look like, God actually is in charge. And he's actually really good at accomplishing his purposes. No matter what your circumstance looks like. There's an interesting thing in chapter one. God's not really mentioned at all. It doesn't look like he's around. Do you ever feel like just God fell asleep on the throne when it comes to like your life? Like he's just sleeping. I love the way the psalmist reminds us that Yahweh never sleeps. God's in charge no matter what. Listen, I know it can be incredibly difficult to believe that when the medical diagnosis is not good or you just lost a job. There's all sorts of situations that happen in our lives, like we read about here, that make it difficult to believe that God's in charge. But just because it's difficult to believe doesn't mean it's not true. Just because we struggle with it doesn't mean it's not true. We don't read about God's intervention in these difficult circumstances anywhere in this chapter. Rather, what we read could seem to point to the opposite, that God's nowhere to be seen. Where's God in the midst of the abuse of slavery? Where's God as, as orders are being given to kill baby boys? Where's God as baby boys are being thrown into the Nile River? Where's he in the midst of that? And then what we do read in chapter two is that they're groaning and their cries for help that God hears them. And this entire story of Exodus is God's response and judgment of Egypt's leaders. And so I think it's always encouraging to look at our circumstances in the light of God's character rather than making assumptions about God's character based on our circumstances. Let me say it again. It's always really helpful to look at our circumstances in light of the character of God rather than looking at the character of God through our circumstances and making assumptions about that. God is there. And while you and I are tempted to doubt his presence, whether we realize it or not, he is present. We were singing the song Yahweh, and we're gonna get to this in a few chapters about how God names himself as the one who is the one who's always been, the one who always will be. You could say the same thing about yourself. You could say, I am. But you are because your parents were. And they were because their parents were. And so on and so forth. There's one being who can say, yeah, I just am. Tell them the one who's always been sent you. 
And so the God of creation is the God of salvation. The God who started all this is gonna finish it. God's message in this opening chapter is like if you want to know what's gonna happen to you, you have to remember who I am and what I've done in the past. I do not change. My care for my people does not change. Our link to this, the way you and I are linked to this, is as the story moves on, it's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and our trust in God that links us right to this story. You and I get uh, grafted in to the people of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So here's the deal. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I know God's moving, and he's doing some really cool stuff. In each of us individually, in us as a community, and throughout the Twin Ports, he's doing some really amazing things. And no matter what we read on the news or on social media that we agree or disagree with, God's actually actively moving and bringing us to himself. And at some point in the future, communion is this picture of it, at some point in the future, there's a feast to end all feasts that we're invited into, Revelation 21. It's amazing. And I think that's not just a metaphor of something. That's like a real thing that God's inviting us into. And so here's what I'd like for us to do. I want to take some time and kind of pray over us as a community and invite the Spirit of God to just kind of move and dial some things up for you. That was chapter one of Exodus. We're going to be in this book for quite some time. I really encourage you, try to read through this with us as we're kind of studying this this fall. I think you'll find it incredibly helpful. All right, why don't you guys stand up? I want to pray for us for a few minutes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the way that you invite us into a much larger story. Where you are moving and working and doing some incredibly cool things. We just thank you for that. Lord, we don't want this to be kind of just dry, dusty words on the page. We want to actually experience your tangible presence in like a very real way. We don't want to just read about it, think about it, like look in a mirror and turn away, forget what we saw. We really want to interact with you and walk with you moment by moment, day by day. And so Holy Spirit, would you come right now and allow us to experience your tangible presence. I like just opening myself up to God, and one of the ways is just allow my body to reflect what my mind is saying, what my heart is feeling. Sometimes I just open up my hands like this, palm up, and I just say, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you bring your tangible presence to us? Thank you that you're always present, that we read in scripture that you are everywhere, Lord, could we experience that right now? I feel like the Holy Spirit would remind us that you are not alone. No matter how alone you may feel, you're not alone.
you're not alone. A big part of trusting God is allowing him to define your reality. He's a keeper of his promises. Rather than your circumstances defining your reality, I think God wants to define it and give you a whole new way to view what you're going through. It's really easy for us to look back at the story and know what's coming. But living in the midst of that story would feel brutal and disheartening. And like all hope is gone. And yet, behind the scenes, your Heavenly Father is working. God, would you give us a confidence and a faith in you, a gift of faith, to see that behind the scenes, you're brilliantly working. Just come, Lord. If you're on the ministry team, could you make your way up front? We love to pray for one another uh, here at the Vineyard. These guys are going to lead us in a little bit more worship. Please feel free to hang out in here like, as long as you want to. And I really encourage you to get some prayer. If it's true that there's an endemic of loneliness in our culture today, I just invite you to step into that loneliness. Don't just pretend it's not there. Don't just try to sweep it under the rug. Don't try to cover it up. I invite you to step into that and come get some prayer. Allow God to meet you in the midst of that. Turn towards him. Experience his presence. And if there's things going on in your life that are leading you to the point of wanting to give up hope, I think he wants to meet you right there as well. And for some of us, we've been on that accumulation treadmill for so long, we've actually built up cities in our life to store the excess. And I think for some of us, God wants to press in about how he has blessed you to be a blessing. And I know it feels like it's never enough. I could just use a little bit more. But I think God wants to put his finger on that. And you're going to get to experience as you follow his lead, as you trust him, a joy in generosity that you didn't know existed. It's a mark of the people of God. And so these guys are ladies in worship. Come on up and get some prayer. Other than that, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming to the vineyard today.